Themes are different to television themes. TV themes have to tell you everything you need to know about a show often in less than a minute, so they have to be snappy and to the point. Movie themes can take their time a little bit more, allow the movie to breathe a bit better. They can also kick a lot of ass. Movie themes do have a lot in common with TV themes in other ways, though. Much like the opening title sequence to TV shows of Fell by the Wayside as TV networks try to squeeze every last advertising dollar out of the hour time slot, movie themes have all but disappeared from the opening of the latest crop of movie releases, with only the James Bond films carrying the torch for the traditional opening credit sequence. Which is a shame, as a whole lot of movies have had some damn good themes. Of course, it's not only the theme that can climb in the ear and stick around the old noggin. Some incidental music can ease its way into the published consciousness just as much as a main theme. So join me again, lovely listener, as I take you on an oral delight. A journey through some of my favourite themes and pieces of incidental music from films. Some are recent, some are classics, which is another word for old, but all are genuinely loved by me for different reasons. In some cases, I'll be playing the theme to certain movies. In others, I'll be picking a piece of the incidental score. But in any case, all of them will be, I hope, well worth your time. There will, I have no doubt, be some predictable choices, if you know me at all. But at the same time, I hope some choices will surprise you. I would be made up if some delighted you. We'll kick things off with a predictable choice. John Williams scored my childhood. Fondly do I remember listening over and over to the scores to Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and, of course, Superman. I loved, and indeed still love, Williams' score to the 1978 Superman movie. It was on constant rotation when I was a kid, all through my teenage years, and even now, well on the road to what I laughably call maturity, I can still be stoked up hearing even a snippet of the classic film score. From the otherworldly awe of the planet Krypton theme, to the elegant beauty of the death of Jonathan Kent, to the beautiful love theme, to the main title, which sums up the title character better than any other Superman score, Williams' Superman and the movie is the gold star in superhero movie themes. So, after that build-up, why have I picked a track from the score to Superman Returns? Well, because as much as I love the 78 score, and as sacrilegious as this may be, there are cues on the Return score I like better. John Ottman, who arranged the music for Brian Singer's largely lifeless homage, adding some lovely touches to the work Williams had already created, taking Williams' already sterling work and adding a texture to it that not only suited Singer's melancholy sidequel, but in some instances actually improved on Williams' work. I said it was sacrilegious. One of these improvements was adding the gorgeous choral arrangement to the planet Krypton, and another was taking the music cue from the Fortress of Solitude in the original and pumping it up to give it a more urgent feel for a track called He's Back. Buried in the mix in the movie, where it accompanies Superman saving the space plane, here you can marvel to the full version. I especially love the way Ottman expands the music slightly with the before the flourish at the end, and then climaxes with the main theme. Goosebumps, I tell ya.
another caped crusader now, the legendary Dark Knight himself, the Batman. When Tim Burton's movie dropped in 1989, one of the most notable elements of the production was the score by Danny Elfman. Elfman has slipped into self-parody on more than one occasion since this was released, but his choir and bells perfectly suited Burton's darker take on the comic book favourite, and the score, which was released alongside the then-new idea of an album of songs by popular musical artists, in this case Prince, was one of the best pieces of merchandise to come out of a film that had merchandise flying out of its ass. The cover was more evocative than the Prince release, which was just the bat-chest emblem which was everywhere in 1989. Eschewing this, Elfman's score has the Batwing, Batman's aerial vehicle of choice, climbing high into the sky before pausing for the briefest of seconds before the moon. This moment made the Batwing look like the Bat-signal, and I can't be the only one who thought that is indeed what was on the cover. I listened to this score, which I had on cassette quite a lot back then, and Elfman's music still accompanies my Batman thoughts whenever I read a Batman comic or novel. Granted, this is largely because the theme to the movie and Elfman's overall approach was poached for Batman the Animated Series, but that just demonstrates how good it was. The cut I've chosen here isn't the theme, rather a track called Finale from the album. This appears at the end of the movie before the credits roll and rises to a magnificent crescendo as the bells toll for the Batman in the Belfry. It's just too damn cool. recent vintage of superhero now and I promise we'll move off the superhero stuff in a moment or two for those that require a bit more variety. When I went seeing Captain America the first Avenger in 2011 I was already hyped for the flick. For one Joe Johnston was directing a period piece set in World War II, an environment he was more than familiar with having made the wonderful yet criminally underrated The Rocketeer in 1994. The fact that Rocketeer was crushed at the box office by the bland and vapid Robin Hood Prince of Thieves, which had Robin been portrayed by a guy who was far too old and couldn't even be asked even attempting an accent, was, for me, the beginning of the decline of Western civilization. Secondly, I was lucky enough to be able to see the set, although sadly I didn't see any filming. 
Most of the 1940s New York stuff was filmed in Manchester, UK, and I was lucky enough to be able to drop down and see what they were up to. More importantly, though, I was made up that the film was an unabashed comic book superhero story, with a recognisably decent Steve Rogers at its heart. The movie makers didn't feel the need to darken him up because he was too corny or some of the rubbish people who don't actually want to be making a comic book movie say. Chris Evans's performance was, and still is, a revelation, and I really don't think he gets the credit he deserves for it. He was surrounded by a great supporting cast, and it's a movie that I think has just gotten better with age. It may even be my favourite superhero movie ever. One of the many reasons for this is Alan Silvestri's score, which in an era of bland superhero scores was bombastic, symphonic and just damned magnificent. I can't tell you how delighted I was to have a superhero movie where I could come out of the cinema humming the theme. It's been a while. Sadly, Marvel chose to not use this theme for the sequel, The Winter Soldier, an incredibly short-sighted and silly move on their part, but I reckon that this is a great theme on what is largely a great score. scored many a great film and won many an award for doing so. He was the quintessential movie composer contributing to Somewhere in Time, Born Free and one of my favourites, The Black Hole. But when I think of Barry, one name springs immediately to mind. Bond. James Bond. Barry scored all the Connery Bonds and perfected what we think of as the Bond sound, a mixture of heavy brass and jazz. It's so linked with the series any time anyone tries something different, Bill Conti's score for For Your Eyes Only, for instance, or Madonna's theme for Die Another Day. Even people who know nothing about film scores point out that the music is a bit crap. In addition to the Connery films, Barry scored a total of 12 Bond films, and even then his work was far superior to anyone who tried to imitate him. I'm not going to play the James Bond theme, as that is credited solely to Monty Norman, as a result of a court case in 2001. What I am going to play is Barry's alternative Bond theme, 007. Appearing in a number of the Connery flicks, starting with From Russia With Love, 007 only appeared in five Bond movies overall, the aforementioned plus Thunderball, You Only Live Twice, Diamonds Are Forever and Moonraker, but it is distinctly memorable to this day. I wanted to make a comeback in Spectre.
Sticking with the super spies, Cars 2 was a sequel I don't think anyone was demanding. The first Cars flick was fun, if overlong, but seemed to score mainly on the merchandising than anything else. My second son, Adam, had a collection of all the original cars and numerous different Lightning McQueens, and he watched the film numerous times as a kid, but never really held our attention in its baggy midsection, and he would frequently fast-forward to the chase at the end. The sequel had the same problems with being overlong and a tad flabby, but scored extra points for being a spy spoof. As he had with The Incredibles, composer Michael Giacano plundered old Bond scores for inspiration and created a great musical accompaniment to the flick, which suits it perfectly. One of my favourite tracks is The Turbomator, a short, sharp burst of a tune that sounds like John Barry banged it out before breakfast. And that's a compliment. from superheroes and super spies for the moment and into Jerry Goldsmith territory. Goldsmith was always my second favourite composer after John Williams. He may not have composed the theme to Superman but he managed to go a little bit romantic for the theme for Supergirl which has long been a favourite score of mine. Especially the gorgeous scene where the lovely Cara Zor-El learns she can fly. Whilst the movie may be a bit of a turkey, there are lessons that can be learned from Supergirl, not the least of which is that a good score can, if not save a movie, make it more tolerable. Then, of course, there's Goldsmith scores for any number of other classic movies, from the booming Total Recall to the discordant tones of Planet of the Apes, from the jungles of Nerve for John Rambo to the far reaches of space for Alien. And who can forget Goldsmith's simply stunning work on Star Trek The Motion Picture? However, I'm going more down to Earth. My favourite flick in the Planet of the Apes franchise after the 1968 original is the third movie, Escape from the Planet of the Apes, and the opening theme to that is one of Goldsmith's best and most underrated. If nothing else, it has a great bass line. Check it out.
Smith's other score that made the grade was First Blood. First Blood is one of my favourite action films from before the time that Sylvester Stallone and his characters just became overblown parodies. It's actually pretty hard to take the damaged, oh-so-human John Rambo of First Blood, a man without a place in the world when he has no war to fight, and equate him with the monosyllabic caricature that was in Rambo First Blood Part 2. Goldsmith scored the second movie but laughed it off in later years, saying whatever else, it bought him a house. First Blood is a different beast, though. For a start, Stallone actually does some acting in First Blood, and, who'd have guessed, he's pretty good at it when he's not being lazy. First Blood is a great action flick, made all the better these days for being all practical and believable in its approach to the action. At its heart, though, it's a personal story, and that's what resonates. At a taut 90 minutes, First Blood moves, and Goldsmith's score for the film is a look inside the mind of John Rambo. It's melodic at the beginning, and slowly becomes more off-kilter as we go, as befits a story about a man on the verge of a nervous breakdown. In this track, we run the whole gamut of emotions as Goldsmith gets inside the head of Mr. John Rambo.
schools are serious. Some schools are ponderous. Some schools are worthy. And some schools are just fun. And nobody brought the fun in like Queen and their epic score for 1980's Flash Gordon. Flash Gordon is a great movie that unfortunately didn't bring in the necessary readies for a sequel, but has become a cult favourite amongst genre and camp movie fans. What made Queen's score for Flash Gordon great as a kid was that it included clips from the film, which, whilst a tad irritating in most cases, really works. Queen would repeat this effect in a lesser way for the work for 1985's Highlander, another great collection of songs, although Queen didn't score Highlander like they did Flash. Flash Gordon is a big, dumb kaleidoscope of a flick, one of the few that would probably look good in 3D conversion, and is a throwback nowadays. No effort is made to make Flash look gritty or realistic. Quite the opposite, in fact. The art direction practically rips the comic strips of the 1930s off the page and pastes them on the screen. And Queen's score is perfect for this kind of movie. Queen were a comic book band anyway, despite Freddie Mercury's assertion that he didn't believe in Superman, and their day-glow, over-the-top brand of pantomime rock was never more suited to a more offbeat project than Flash Gordon. This track, Football Fight, is pretty damn good for basically taking the hero of the flick and making him look like an idiot. to John Williams now for two prime cuts from the Williams factory. The first was a simple choice. With Superman off the table due to my inclusion of John Ottman's reworking of a famous Williams work, there was no other theme that Williams composed that is more rousing and more suited to its title character than the Raiders' March. Williams likes his marches. We like Williams' marches. It's a match made in heaven, or in the Ark of the Covenant at any rate. We all know the story. Williams had two opposing tunes to use as the theme for Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Hearts, Hero du Jour, and couldn't decide which he preferred. He played them both for director Steven Spielberg, who said, Put them both together. Williams did. A classic was born. <laughs> <laughs> 
Indiana Jones is a hero of the old school. As quick with his intellect as he is with his fists, scholar and patron of the arts, yet capable of dusting it up with the best of them. Indy is a geek boy's dream hero. Bespectacled and clad in tweed when teaching underage jailbait, decked out in a beaten old leather jacket and a classic fedora when out relic hunting, our hero tended to be beaten up quite often, but he never stayed down. This homage to 40 series is perfectly suited to Williams, and he doesn't let us down. Say it with me, people. It belongs in a museum. second choice was no choice at all. The Empire Strikes Back is Darth Vader's movie. Even when he's not on screen, he dominates the thoughts and actions of the other characters. He's a relentless presence in Empire, following his own agenda with all the tenacity of a two-year-old child determined not to go to sleep. He's like a shark, constantly moving, constantly breathing down the necks of the heroes. He is, in short, one of the finest movie villains ever, and he proves this by winning... The Rebellion is in disarray at the end of Empire. Han Solo is a coffee table. Luke lacks a limb and is shaken to the core. And Leia can't decide who to snog. 
To make matters worse, Lander was raided Hans' wardrobe and stole the Millennium Falcon. As such, one of the best and most prevalent pieces of music used in Empire is the Imperial March. This piece exudes menace, even when you learn the words to Spoonful of Sugar can be sung to it. Darth Vader is simply awesome in Empire, and he needed an awesome theme. Luckily, he got one. There's an argument to be made that Empire is William's best work. If it is, this may be the best track on his best work. Danny Elfin now for a duo of tracks from the man who largely succeeded John Williams as the go-to composer in the 90s. I was surprised by how many of Elfman's tracks made it to the shortlist, and even more surprised that, Batman aside, they weren't the obvious ones. 
Elfman has become easy to parody in recent times, especially his collaborations, as I mentioned earlier, with Tim Burton. But when the guy's at the top of his game, he's actually very versatile. Case in point, the only theme to 1988's Robert De Niro crime fest, Midnight Run. Midnight Run is a great movie, one of those we leave on whenever we stumble across it on television, and for a while that was a lot. See, ITV4 go through periods of having about 12 films, and they put those 12 films on heavy rotation for the time that they owned them. Midnight Run was one such film. It also features two great performances from the leads, and not yet slumming Robert De Niro as bounty hunter Jack Walsh, and his prey, Jonathan the Duke Marducas, played by Charles Grodin. The movie is a wacky light comedy with action beats, yet surprisingly touching in places, which is probably why they need an actor like De Niro to make the drama work. Elfman's score for this movie is a jazz-infused piece, and the main theme sums up the movie in two and a half minutes. if you want to be picky, Elfman pieces from a flick called Hot to Trot. This appeared on Elfman's album Music for a Darkened Theatre, and to this day, I have no idea what Hot to Trot is. It sounds like a terrible teen sex comedy, but I've no idea. I know we have this thing called Google or Wikipedia, but I don't care enough to look. I just like this theme. It sounds like it should be the opening credits to a 1980s light comedy drama about a couple of mismatched cops or a Scarecrow and Mrs. King type thing. As I say, I've got no clue if that's the kind of film that Hot to Trot is, but those are the images that come to mind. It's probably the reason I've never sought out Hot to Trot. If it isn't any of these things, I'll probably be quite upset. 
rather western. Big skies, Monument Valley. Horses, cowboys, saloons, gold, stagecoaches, a cloud of dust and a hearty Hi-ho, Silver, away! My heroes have always been cowboys. I think I may have mentioned it. Even long after the western was gone, its iconography loomed large. The A-Team was a western. Knight Rider was a western. Hell, Battlestar Galactica was a western. It's been said that the duration of time that we actually think of as being the Old West was less than 25 years, but a hell of a lot happened in that time. In many of these tales, the cowboy is an honourable man. Largely apolitical in and of himself, he rides because he has nowhere else to go. Does what he does because to him it signifies freedom, but secretly he longs to hang up his guns and retire. Such is one of the themes of The Magnificent Seven, a 1960s western that is still, today, the epitome of cool. Hell, Steve McQueen, arguably the coolest man who ever lived, is in this film, and he's not the coolest thing about it. That honour goes to Yul Brynner, who, as Chris Adams, leader of the Seven, uses his physicality and ice-cold stir to stunning effect. The rest of the cast are pretty good too, and such is the influence of the film that Name All the Magnificent Seven is still a standard pub quiz. If you're ever in such a situation, by the way, Horst Buchholz and Brad Dexter are the ones everyone forgets. Elmer Bernstein's theme is a joyous one, capturing the adventure yet to come. The Magnificent Seven is still a great movie, and one can only hope the upcoming remake doesn't suck. Although, it'd be hard-pressed to gather a cast as good as this. Men you believe could kill you rather than pretty boys. But either way, the original is still there. We deal in lead, friend. iconography of the West, and there's probably no more potent a symbol than that of Clint Eastwood. Poncho slung back over one shoulder, cheroot in mouth, hand casually resting upon his holster which lies lazily on his hip. From out the Italian wilderness, Clint squints and says, In this world, there are two kinds of men, my friend. Those with loaded guns, and those who dig. You dig. And the world marvels at the man's cojones. Of course, there are many spectacular things about Leone's Dollars trilogy, not least the minimalist dialogue. The action, scenery and scope of the flicks also deserve a mention, but it's hard not to hear the opening strains of The Good, The Bad and The Ugly by Ennio Morricone and not squint a tad and put your hand to your hip. Were you going to die alone?
course, westerns have transplanted to other genres as well. I've already mentioned a few, but none were more blatant than Back to the Future Part 3, which happily purloined a number of western tropes through its third instalment, A Trip to 1885. Stranded in the past, time-travelling teenager Marty McFly adopts the name Clint Eastwood and dresses like the man with no name, even stealing a few of his tricks to prevent his death at the hands of Buford Mad Dog Tannen. For Back to the Future 3, composer Alan Silvestri happily pilfered the Western back catalogue for themes and motifs, and it all started with this piece at the end of Back to the Future Part 2. Set to clips from the yet-to-be-released Part 3, this clip show plays like a pretty cool next time at the end of a TV show. I know it got me stoked for Part 3. do some synth. I have to confess, I don't tend to go to synth music as a rule. There are exceptions, to be sure, but I tend to prefer orchestral scores more often than not, which is not to say a synth score can't be pretty damn good when the situation calls for it. Case in point, many of the scores for John Carpenter's early films. Now, I have a large soft spot for Carpenter's early work, in particular Assault on Precinct 13, a tight little siege movie. However, probably my favourite of the early Carpenter flicks is Escape from New York. Now, it's fair to say that Escape from New York has a reach that exceeds its grasp. It's a brilliant premise, hampered by its meagre budget, but that's also possibly what makes it great. It's a brilliant B-movie, put together with class and style, so who cares if the budget strings show occasionally? Never hurt Doctor Who to have more imagination than money. One of the ways Carpenter stretches the budget is to provide the music himself, with longtime collaborator Alan Howarth, and he did this for a number of his own flicks, providing the score for the aforementioned Assault, The Fog, and Dark Star, amongst others. However, for Escape, he provided one of his most memorable opening themes, and indeed soundtracks generally. Adding to the ambiance, Carpenter included a great track in the film, the sublime Everyone's Coming to New York, but this sing-along is an offbeat cut amidst a great synth score. The theme is still where it's at.
Following up Escape from New York is another great synth score from musician Brad Fidel. Like Escape from New York, The Terminator was a low-budget sci-fi B-movie that proves, if proof were needed, that we didn't need budgets of obscene amounts to make a pretty damn good flick back in the day. And whilst the movie pretty much needs every element to come together to work, Fidel's score on The Terminator adds a great deal to the film. The wonderful dum-dum-dum-dum theme that accompanies Arnold Schwarzenegger's cyborg villain throughout the film adds menace to every scene Arnie's in. And while Schwarzenegger modulates his performance perfectly in this film, arguably his best performance, it's Fidel's constant thrum that makes you fear him. Again, like the shark in Jaws, the music signposts the terror, and it does it magnificently. But when Fidel has to go for pace, he does so. Witness the great, fast-paced underscory layers under the action and the chase scenes. However, it's the theme that lives on in the mind. Despite being used again in the other films, it's never more perfect than it is in the original, and still the best Terminator movie, as it was written for the Terminator as a villain. And there is no finer example of chasing the almighty dollar than the Terminator being turned into a good guy. Screw that! I want my badass Terminator! Although I have to confess that the Terminator woman, the Terminatrix, she had a pretty nice ass, is the theme. is an inspirational story. Clichéd, sure, but inspirational. So the music score also needed to be inspirational. And I can pay Bill Conti's music for Rocky no bigger compliment than, here, nearly 40 years after it was composed, his music for Rocky, and in particular the biggest hit, Gonna Fly Now, can still motivate people, myself included, when at the gym. Numerous cuts from the Rocky films are embedded in film fans' memories, and more often than not they are tracked by Conti's score. 
skipping effortlessly from stirring to moving and back again. Tracks like Conquest, Fanfare for Rocky, and my next pick, Going the Distance, pump the blood like few others. Sadly, Conti didn't score Rocky IV, which saw Stallone go for the money by tracking most of the film with 80s Big Herb ballads. A little score there is was provided by Vince DiCola, and whilst it's perfectly acceptable in and of itself, it's very dated compared to a lot of what Conti put down. Granted, there's no reason to believe that Conti himself wouldn't have delivered a horrible sin score for Rocky IV, just as he did for the James Bond film For Your Eyes Only, but it would have been nice to have had the opportunity. Unless he priced himself out. You never know. It's going the distance. Star Trek was brought back and rebooted with a younger, sexier cast and made to appeal to people with ADHD rather than the ideas inspired original. However, Trek has proved before that a great score can almost save a bad film. And such was the case here, with Michael Giacano making a second appearance in the list, providing a top-notch score to 2013's Into Darkness. Granted, even his work couldn't outright save this movie, so poorly written a film one wishes it would fall into the nexus, but at least his work was of the highest quality. 
Over the years, Star Trek has had a lot of themes. Alexandra Courage's original was reworked very well for the 09 movie, but where Giacano really hit the bullseye was in an all-new Trek-type theme. Easily the best since Jerry Goldsmith composed the motion picture. Giacano almost makes you think these films are going to be good. for two different themes from two classic 60s flicks. First up, Lalo Schifrin's turtleneck-wearing swinging theme for the Steve McQueen movie, Bullet. 
Now, I'm a big McQueen fan, but in a lot of ways, Bullet is overrated. Yes, it has one of the coolest car chases ever committed to celluloid, but a single great scene does not a great movie make. Besides, there's no way a Ford Mustang of that vintage could beat a 1968 Dodge Charger. I can suspend my disbelief, but not that much. It's the most mismatched car chase in film history until James Bond outran a Ferrari in his 1962 Aston Martin in Goldeneye. Still, one way that Bullet does live up to the hype is in its score. This theme perfectly suits the king of cool Mr. Steve McQueen. Take it away, Lalo. Get Carter couldn't be further away from the gloss of Bullet. Get Carter is a grimy underworld thriller set in the seedy side of the north of England, Newcastle. It doesn't get much more, hey, it's grim up north than Newcastle. In the film, this theme tracks Carter, that other icon of 60s cool, Michael Caine, as he journeys on the train to the place of his birth to learn about the death of his brother. Get Carter is a miserable film in all the right ways. Compelling and fascinating, Get Carter is a cult classic that deserves to be seen by everyone who only knows Kane from his lesser works or as Alfred Pennyworth. Top tip, though, do not bother with the Stallone remake. Kane was a hard bastard in Get Carter, a man you could believe would throw you off a car park roof, and the score is equally terse throughout. Sadly, this is now used to advertise cars. I really do hate when advertisements pull on music from other things and ruin them. The worst kinds are when they take songs and change the lyrics. God, I hate that. I don't hate this theme, though. It's still pretty cool.
said that this is the Marvel age of movies. From the 2008 release of Iron Man, a movie that catapulted the really rather lesser known Marvel Comics character into the upper echelons of pop culture, the Marvel movies have become an unstoppable juggernaut of consistently enjoyable flicks, and they did it without access to their biggest properties, the X-Men and Spider-Man. Since Robert Downey Jr. grabbed Tony Stark by the lapels and told him he could be as big as Bruce Wayne, Marvel have doled out movie after movie that shows their love and respect for their characters and their belief that the source material had some artistic merit. Yes, there have been missteps, but Marvel's overall batting average is higher than most studios. All except in one place. The score. Starting with Iron Man, the scores weren't bad. They just weren't great. That started to change with Captain America, which, as is to be expected, had a tub-thumping theme. Then Marvel started doing something unusual. They started putting opening credit-like sequences at the start of their end titles, with some great graphics and throat-grabbing tunes. This was one of the best. Can You Dig It closed out Iron Man 3 on a swinging high note. It's a little bit 60s, a little bit Bond, a little bit jazz, and even a touch of Barry Gray. Add all that together, though, and you've got something wonderful. I guarantee this'll be in your head for the rest of the day.
for this one and for my trilogy of musical musings. Never say never, obviously, but I never intended to do more than one of these, but they are just so much fun to put together and, hopefully, to listen to. Perhaps, sadly, there are some notable omissions. Something from Koyana Skatsy may have been fun, or In the House in a Heartbeat from 28 Days Later. If you'd like to hear more TV and film themes, others have also taken the ball and ran with it. Gene Hendricks, Tom Panneries, Luke Giaconetti and Alan Middleton all did shows based around a similar idea, and they are all worth checking out. Michael Bailey, being Mike Bailey, and Scott Gardner, being Scott Gardner, of course did it before us, and their musical episodes are also well worth checking out. Maybe we should put them all together as a box set. I don't know who'd buy them, though. I would have to pay an awful lot of money in royalties. Probably wouldn't be worth our effort. Anyway, a couple of emails came in on the last episode I did. Yeah, that's how close to each other I'm recording these. Which was the one I did about the Incredible Hulk episode, The Snur. Gene Hendricks emailed in. Host of The Hammer Strikes. And many, many other podcasts. The Quantum Cast, Anime Freaks, all of that stuff. Andy Gene says, in preparing to listen to your latest episode, I watched The Snur on Netflix. Ooh, good man. Whilst I don't have specific memories of this episode, I was a huge fan of The Incredible Hulk as a kid, so this brought me back to watching it with my grandfather. What is it about grandparents and their kids watching The Hulk? I used to watch it with my nan. I agree that this is most definitely one of the best episodes of the series. Both of the lead actors are great, and even Lou Ferrigno sells the fact that The Hulk doesn't kill, to the point that he looks worried when Sutton falls off the cliff. I should also point out that this particular episode puts lie to those that says Bixby has white eyes when he's about to hulk out. Here, mainly in the change back after the bird's nest, but also in the pit, we see quite clearly that his eyes are green. This is why I always played the hulk with my grandfather, who had green eyes. He would make his eyes wide, pretending to be Dr. Banner, and then I would take over as the hulk. A very diminutive hulk, mind you, but it was still fun. Well, I think that that comes from the pilot episode where Bixby actually says my eyes were white. So when the lead character actually comes out and says that's what colour his eyes are, people are going to believe it. For the most part, the contact lenses were white, because they were the same ones that were used in the Omega Man, the Charlton Heston flick. Now, whether they changed them later on, because they did certainly seem to get greener as the series continued, uh, I don't know. I don't know whether they altered the lenses or not. I do know both Bixby and Ferrigno hated wearing them but they were such a big part of the transformation that they didn't really have much choice, because uh, they really did add to that transformation. Gene continues, by the way, I don't believe that the recording in the house was a goof. I think there was a standard recording of Sutton used for all of his prey. His referring to David or whoever as part animal was simply his way of degrading them. You'll note that he never mentioned David by name in the recording, which is an exceptionally good point. He doesn't actually say, David, you're part animal. But I certainly interpreted it as uh, as in referring to the fact that he talks out. But, you know, he doesn't actually say that. So, yeah, fair enough. Fair comment. Thank you, Gene. Uh, Chris Franklin emailed in with the most dangerous Hulk. Hello, Andy. I remember this one. Despite its absence, I think, on the best-of DVD set I have of the Hulk, this episode left an impression on me, obviously, as I probably haven't seen it since watching reruns on the Sci-Fi channel in the late 90s. I really need to get those seasons set. Anyway, this is indeed a great one. Not much to add to that that you didn't already say, other than the plot to the most dangerous game even found its way onto Gilligan's Island. Yes, a big game hunter came to the island with his trusty servant, no less than odd job from Goldfinger, and chose Gilligan as his prey. Hilarity, of course, ensued. I'll take your word for that, Chris. I've never seen so much as a single episode of Gilligan's Island. Great show. Thank you for making me recall this one. Chris, well, you're very welcome. I had a lot of fun doing that one. Although the production time on it was considerably larger than the recording time. I had this great idea. 
whilst I was editing the episode, I thought, all right, my audio's only ended up being about 22 minutes. Let's do what they do on Cyborgs, a bionic cast by Paul Bisson and John K. John Estro. Paul K. Bisson and John Estro, I mixed up the middle initials there. And what they do is they include clips of the show underneath them talking, and then they bring them up to emphasise what they're talking about. And it's such a cool idea, I thought, I will rip that. <clears throat> I will pay homage to that. And then two and a half hours later, I was seriously regretting that, regretting that I decided to do it. I mean, it ended up not being a, a bad one. It's not my favourite editing job. I don't think it... I don't think it, it didn't work as well as I, I wanted it to. Put it that way. There was something about the matching of my audio with the clips from the show that I, I felt was a bit off. But after spending two and a half hours on it, I wasn't about to go back and re-edit it. But I'm glad people seem to enjoy it. Anyway, maybe we're just our harshest critics ourselves. Maybe we just judge our own work a little too harshly, I don't know. Uh, my final episode, an uh, email about that episode, sorry, is from the mighty Luke Giaconetta. Oh, Hulk out, chic, green freak. Andy, just wanted to drop you a quick line about your latest Palace episode, dealing with the episode The Snur from The Incredible Hulk. I'm sure I've seen this episode, as I have a lot of fond memories watching this show on syndicated reruns as a little kid, but I've long since forgotten the details. The most dangerous game meets The Incredible Hulk is one of the head-slappingly brilliant ideas which leads one to think, why didn't I think of that? I really loved your analysis of the formula of the Incredible Hulk, including the Hulkouts. The formulaic nature of the genre TV, especially from the 70s, is one of those things which I really noticed as a kid, but that I really look for nowadays. It's fun to see the ways that the screenwriters can twist their stories in order to fit into the formula and still tell a good story. Sci-fi fans nowadays don't understand this, what with their season-long story arcs and plots which crop up once in season one and then come back at the end of season four, but the nature of turn-the-crank story engine shows is their ability to provide entertainment week in and week out, even if you miss the previous few episodes. You mentioned that The Most Dangerous Game has been adapted and riffed on numerous times. Doing some research, I found some really strange examples of this trope being utilised in TV shows such as Cold Case, Get Smart... Lost in Space, Bonanza, twice, Gilligan's Island, The Critic, Futurama... What are you... Why do you always interrupt? The Critic, Futurama, Doctor Who, American Dad, and The Monkeys. And that's even without mentioning one of my personal favourites, the last act of The Man with the Golden Gun, with the late, great Christopher Lee stalking Roger Moore. Anyway, thanks for your courage of The Snur, which I'm definitely going to add to my checkout list. Looking forward to the next music episode and everything which comes after that, Luke. Well, thank you for that segue, Luke, into what does come after that. Well, I've got here to my right. I have now reached the point in Star Wars Rebel Dawn where it becomes Han Solo at Star's End. So I'm now reading that. So that Han Solo episode is still gestating and will come out... I'm pretty sure it'll come out eventually. I think next time, though, procrastination be damned. I think it's time to look at Lee Ditko's Spider-Man. Now, I'm going to warn you in advance, I ain't going back to doing a regular schedule. That that was very crippling towards the end. So if doing the Lee Ditko Spider-Man takes a little longer and you don't get one of these every two weeks or so, which is kind of what I've been releasing them as, all I can say is just hang tight and it'll be worth it, because I'm going to cover all 38 issues and the two annuals that uh, Lee and Ditko did on Spider-Man. Still, in my opinion, the gold standard for Spider-Man, and I think um, the Bible, as far as comic books are concerned, that run on Spider-Man. So that's probably what's going to come next, because that's that's what I'm in the mood for. I'm in a Star Wars mood, I'm in a Spider-Man mood. I'm pretty much always in a Star Wars or a Spider-Man mood. 
anyway, uh, that's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed my final musical episode. For now, you know, I, I may do another one from some time down the line. You can never say no, can you? Oh, I know. I know what I did want to do. I fancied doing one all about the incidental music of Star Trek. The original, obviously. The incidental music from the other shows was shit. Oh, now I've gone and said this is the last one of my trilogy of musical musings and I've just come up with another great idea. Anyway, we'll do Spider-Man next. Um, yeah, thank you for joining me. 2TrueFreaks.com has loads of great shows. Go and listen to them. And remember that the Amazon link's there. Click on that. Go and buy your, your pawn from Amazon. Your, your gimp masks and uh, your th- 50 shades of grey whips or whatever it is that you people buy. And some of the money goes to TTF and it helps us keep the lights on, which is nice because it lets us do more stuff like this. And hopefully you like stuff like this, so go and do that. Anyway, that's it for this week. I'll see you next time. Thank you for joining me. Bye-bye.